Let's open our Bibles to Revelation 21. I have, uh, I have felt it myself and I have seen it in you. And that is that uh, I think we're tired in a lot of ways. We're tired and we're weary and we're sad and we're mad and we're broken for a whole bunch of reasons. It all comes down to the same core problem, but we're weary because of death and disease and disability and disappointment. And don't think for a moment that disappointment is is less heartbreaking and life-altering than death. Disappointment can be worse. We're weary, we're tired, I'm so tired of politicians that abuse their power and pastors who abuse their churches and parents who abuse their children. We're aborting children in the womb because we're either too afraid to deal with that reality or we don't want to be inconvenienced because our lives are so important. We're cultivating cruelty in our children by our own example in how we treat each other in this world, people who differ with, from us in, in the slightest. We hate people for the color of their skin and we cancel people and dismiss people and loathe people who take ideas and opinions that are different from ours, even people who desperately need hope and redemption that we've experienced for ourselves It's not just that we see problems in the world, we're a part of the problem. We live not just in a culture of fear, we live in a self-created culture of fear. And the only hope that we really latch onto is fictional fantasy hope that we see on our screens, in TV shows, and movies. And it's like we experience a little bit of hope there, and boy, doesn't that feel good. And then we get back to real life, and it's weariness and bitterness. It's not to say that life is all bad. I know that there are so many things that we praise God for. But we're tired. We long for better. We were made for better. We long for better. And we need to learn how to live for better. And so we're going to take a look at at more than a chapter. We're going to look at Revelation 21, all of it, and five verses of 22, because this gives us a picture One picture of the new heaven and the new earth. But in all of these verses, I just want us to see one thing. And I I hope, I hope that as we maybe reorient ourselves again, as we renew our eschatology, as as we find value in these promises that we receive in the future, that that we would find a way to walk in them now. The principle that I want us to take away from these passages is this. To persevere through this world, we must prepare for the new world. To persevere through this broken, wearisome world, we have to prepare for the world to come. 
And so before we get into Revelation 21, just again, a brief setup in case you're new here, let you know what we've been seeing. The book of Revelation is a collection of visions that was given to John to give to churches that were experiencing what we call tribulation. In other words, the book of Revelation was specifically written to help weary Christians. People who are tired, people who are hurting, people who are broken, it's written for them. Those who are being persecuted or dismissed, people that are suffering death and the loss of all things, people who live in a, in a world that desperately needs a full redemption, it's written to them, to us. And the theme of the book, given to encourage these Christians who are going through various times of tribulation, the theme is the victory of Jesus Christ and his church over the devil and the world. That's the theme that we've seen run through all of the visions again and again and again. And here we are, Revelation 21. It's the end. It's the glorious end of all things, which means it's actually the glorious beginning of what is new and what is eternal and everlasting. So here what we see is newness. We see paradise. We see perfection. So we're going to have to go through it section by section because it's a lot, right? So we're just going to start with the first eight verses and see this depiction of the eternal state being comprised of and described as this beautiful relationship between God and his people, right? So look at one through eight. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he also said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. As for the cowardly, the, fa the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Here we see a picture of God and his people. We read about the new heavens and the new earth, right? It's exciting. It should be exciting. It should at least pique our curiosity. What are we talking about here? And when we say new heavens and new earth, we don't mean new heaven as, if we, as, as most people think about heaven, the spiritual plane of existence. The heaven or the heavens here speaks of the celestial planets, the sun, moon, the stars, outer space, the universe, the cosmos. That all is going to be made new. The heavens and the earth, it's made new. And this is not a new promise. This is not a shock to the people of God because they have been hearing this promise since the days of old. We go all the way back to Isaiah. Isaiah 65, verse 17. 
For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Or we go over to chapter 66, verse 22 of Isaiah. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. The, the end, which is the beginning of what is left, the beginning of our eternal lives, begins with a new heaven and a new earth. The old has passed away. Right, the judgment has come, and we've seen this in the book of Revelation, that when the great day comes, creation is burned up by fire is one of the pictures, right? There is a judgment that comes upon creation, and now things are going to be made new. The old ways, the old order of things, that what makes life so wearisome is gone. We're done with it. God is done with it. And there's no more sea which is kind of a weird thing, right? There's no more sea. There are some people that take the book of Revelation overly literally, in my estimation, and they try to interpret it in passages like this as if this is going to be a description of what our plane of existence is going to be like. And when we read about this city, right, the New Jerusalem, they think like, okay, we're going to live in a box. We're going to live in this shiny uh, jewel-encrusted cube. And, uh, and that's where we're going to live. And they take it all very literally. And we say like, oh, in this new earth, there's going to be no seas. But if you recall, as we read through the book of Revelation, when the seas are brought up, it's a place of danger. It's a place of death. It's where people lose their lives. It's where souls are lost and forgotten. And here, there's no danger. There's no seas. There's no death. This is the picture that we're getting. Right? The, that the new heavens and the new earth has replaced the old order of things. The new has come. We see this new Jerusalem in verses two and three. Now, what is it talking about? What is, the, is this the city? Is this a literal city that we're going to live in in the future? I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And in fact, what we see as we work our way through this chapter is that this city is the people of God, the church of God. It's going to become very clear as we go through the next paragraph. But for now, stay with me. Here we have a depiction of the people of God, the church, Old Testament saints and New Testament saints. This is the bride of Christ where God is said to dwell. In the Old Covenant, where did God dwell? It was in the tabernacle or it was in the temple. It was at the Ark of the Covenant that was in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. That's where it was. But now, in the New Covenant era, where does God dwell? He dwells with each of us in our hearts. The Holy Spirit takes up residency. Each of us are called a temple of the Holy Spirit. But more often, the emphasis is on God dwells with his people. The church is the temple. God is with all of us. And that doesn't mean in the, the box that we meet in on Sunday. He is with us as his people who have been redeemed by his son. For example... 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, speaking to the church and about the church. Do you not know that you, collectively, you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Now, the new has come, this new Jerusalem. This is the people of God. In fact, listen to these verses, because it gets more beautiful. In fact, this picture gets more beautiful as we see this picture of God and his people in eternity. Because we have here this. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. It doesn't actually literally say they will be his people. It literally says they will be his peoples. His peoples. It's plural, right? It's plural to indicate that the dwelling of God, the new Jerusalem, the church is made up of peoples from every tribe and tongue and nation. The great redemptive work of Jesus is diverse in its application, in the administration of its salvation. And we see this. We see this, in in fact, in Revelation 5, 9, right? We're reading about the lamb, right? The lamb who is worthy to open up this scroll and, and, and release the unfolding plan of God throughout history, culminating in the end and the renewal of all things. And it says, worthy are you to open the seals because, well, it says, uh, you have purchased with your blood a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. This is the city, the people of God. All of us are the same in our sinfulness. All of us have the same standing in our redemption, and yet we're all so different, coming from different places and backgrounds. This is the new. No more separation of peoples. We're all brought together as one people. And sin and suffering and death is done. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, crying, no pain, because the former way of things, the former former method of, of existence and the forward movement of history, all of that is now done because it was all leading to more and more sin and death. Sin, suffering, and death has come to an end here. And now what we have is satisfaction. Satisfaction for God's people. You know satisfaction because you want it, you need it. We, we long for it, we look for it, and we find it. We get to taste it. We all get a little bit of satisfaction, right? But we get it in those like pink spoon size at Baskin Robbins. We get a little sample, a little sampler of satisfaction. We get just, just enough to go, yeah, I like that. I want some more of that. And... Uh, but that's it, right? It's, it's, it's there for a moment. It's fleeting. We do. We do experience satisfaction in this life here and there, in measure, in part, but never permanently, never in full. But listen to the satisfaction that the people of God have in verses, verses uh, five through seven. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. 
it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And the one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. There, there's satisfaction. I love it. Because I think, you know, our weariness for Christians, much of our weariness is an aspect of our thirstiness. Like Jesus says in Matthew 5, right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Right? They're going to find satisfaction. We taste it in part now in the gospel, in our relationship with Jesus Christ, in the kingdom of God, but we don't taste it in full. We don't move beyond the pink spoon measure until the end. Then we get it all. Then we are fully and completely satisfied. Then we can drink fully of this river of water of life and have our fill. In fact, Jesus in John 4, verse 14 said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Yes, there's, there's satisfaction now in measure. But we're still looking forward. Satisfaction for the thirsty. Satisfaction and security for, for the faithful, right? Those who overcome those who overcome have the assurance. Those who conquer will dwell secure. They will be with me. They will have the inheritance. Now, if you're new to the book of Revelation, understand this, that those who overcome are not the strong. Those who overcome in the world are not the powerful, not the political, not the beautiful. Those who overcome are the faithful, meaning they are the ones who have come to believe in Jesus Christ, that he is the son of God who conquered sin and Satan, death and hell. He is the redeemer in whom we have a new identity, our, the cleansing of our sin, our standing with God. We are made whole in that savior. And the faithful are those who believe in this Christ and follow him through a wearying world. See, those who overcome and conquer aren't those who win, not by the world standard, because many of the people that we read about in this book who win died. They had their heads cut off or they were sawn in two, eaten by lions, they starved to death. The one who overcomes is the one who entrusts their soul to God even in tribulation, even when they are still waiting for the fulfillment of the promise of satisfaction, knowing that it comes in the end. I mean, what are we yearning for, right? What are we hungry for, really, at bottom? It's righteousness, right? Like Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. In fact, in 2 Peter chapter 3, listen. 2 Peter 3, 13 says, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's what we're looking for. That's what we're hungry for, righteousness, the very character of God, the will of God, the beauty of God on display, overtaking everything so that there's righteousness and peace and prosperity and justice and love and mercy and no sin, no evil, no wickedness, no temptation. This 
is good news for us, right? We're looking forward to that. And it's not just that in this new, it's all good. It is all good for those who have trusted in Christ, but it is all bad for those that have rejected him. In fact, look at verse eight of chapter 21. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. That's, that's not, yeah, that doesn't fit as well as the rest. It's everything's been so great. It's been so positive and so good and it feels good and all of a sudden like, oh, yeah, we're, yeah God is still holy and he's still dealing with sin. It, the point here is that everyone will be held accountable for their own wickedness. And in the end, in the very end, you will either be measured by your guilt or God's grace. Those are the options. You're measured by your guilt, which means condemnation, or you're measured by God's grace, which overcomes our guilt. And I love that we have what? Eight, eight kinds of people that are going to hell. These are the eight, the eight hellbound people. It's not that they're the only ones, right? We have lists in the Bible of wickedness and righteousness and the lists overlap and change and there's different things. The point is that, that these are, this is a list of people that are responsible for their own actions. And so they're going to answer before God. Cowards, faithless, detestable murderers. Coward seems harsh to me. Right? Maybe it's because I'm a little bit of a coward at times. Because I think of a cowardly person, like, well, don't be mad at them. They're just scared. They're a little, little left like a little baby. So they're, so they're cowardly, right? You think, like, what's the, what's the problem? Why would, he, why would somebody be judged for cowardice? But the kind of cowardice that, that Revelation has in mind here is the kind of cowardice that knows that following Jesus, that following Jesus will cost you, that it brings you into a, 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 a time of tribulation where the world may turn its back on you, where your family may disown you, where you might have to suffer the consequences of pledging your allegiance to Jesus above political party. And you say, like, no, 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 I'm all about Christ and I'm, I'm living for him. That has consequences in it. And the kind of cowardice that we're talking about here is this kind that says, you know what? I value my personal comfort and safety over the glory of God. Jesus is worth something, but he's not worth me. That's the kind of cowardice. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the easy way out. It's self-preservation, which is self-exaltation here. So cowards are condemned. So are the faithless, the unbelieving, those who reject the very revelation of God that is put before them. The detestable and the murderers. These are the easy ones for us, right? Because we want these people to go to hell. If you're honest, most of you, some of you, like I want them to go. They're bad people. They've done really bad things. And so the detestable, the murderer, the, the people that hurt people and exploit and abuse and mistreat as if they are somehow beyond the reach of God's grace, as if they can't be cleansed and renewed and changed. We've got our own list, don't we? There's sinners and then there are those people. But they're all together here, aren't they? The detestable, the murderers, the sexually immoral. I don't know why it is, but some Christians like to play games with this idea, it's this concept of sexual immorality. And people on both the liberal and the conservative side like to play with it and make it a very narrow definition. But the word actually is 
a pretty gener- generic term. It's a pretty general term. It's pretty broad. And it means those who engage in, in sexual activity outside of the marriage bed. It's not just one form of sexual deviancy. It's all forms of it. And Jesus explains to us, like, listen, adultery is is a sin clearly it's a violation but it's not the real problem you see the problem is the heart what you do with your body is a symptom of the bigger problem the bigger problem is in your heart that's why jesus says to lust in your heart is to commit the sin of adultery the point being as you read through the list you should be able to say we're all guilty of these things sorcerers and idolaters sorcery here has the idea of incantation uh, or invocation, uh, think witchcraft. Uh, and idolatry, the, the, the more general term, right? You may not be into witchcraft, right? But you, you may very well be an idolater where you exalt one thing, a created thing or a person. It could be anything, but something created to the place of supreme value and importance in your life. That thing becomes your God because it eclipses the God who made you and deserves all of your sacrifice and service. But instead you give it all to this. What comes first? What's most important? What is your prize? What is your joy? That thing that is first is your God and makes us idolaters and liars. I like that that's in there. Because everybody lies. I mean, I know people today that do not lie. They do not lie. They're, they have good character. They do not lie. Doesn't mean they wouldn't lie. Because you put anybody in the wrong situation... And sin just sort of bubbles up to the surface, doesn't it? Because every seed of sin and evil is inside every one of us. I wouldn't kill a person right now. But you put me in a situation where I am tempted and assaulted from all angles. You know what? The idea of murdering somebody could become in my mind something like, oh, and now I'm tempted to do it. This is what some of these movies that we like to watch are about. Like people get put into a situation where the pressure is really intense and they, and they have to decide, am I going to do the wrong thing or the right thing? But lying, everybody lies. If you don't lie because you have good character now, I know for a fact you lied before. And even if you don't lie explicitly, you exaggerate, you embellish, or you let people think things about you that aren't true. You encourage the deceit which amounts to a lie, which earns hell. We're all guilty is the point, right? The point is, is that people that wind up in hell are there because of their own doing. The new, the new heavens, the new earth, it isn't earned. It isn't built by men and women. It can't emerge from our own industry. It can only be graced. It must be gifted to us. It's created by God and given to the undeserving. Because let's be honest. All of us were cowards and faithless and detestable and murderers and sexually immoral and sorcerers and idolaters and liars. We were those things, but God, by God's grace, we've been cleansed of that and we've been progressively being changed into something better. Now we are saints in the kingdom and we await this gift And then we look at verses 9 through 27 and we begin to see, okay, we get a closer look at this city, the church. We get this closer look at the people of God and we see how beautiful it is in this particular vision. Now, before we look at this, let me just ask you a question. What do you look like? 
I mean, for real, like ask yourself, take some inventory. What, ask yourself, what do I look like? And I don't mean when you look in the literal mirror, I mean the metaphorical mirror. I think a lot of us, I think too many of us, I think most of us here see all of the ugly, we see the, all of the unbelief, we see all of the struggle and the failures, we see our weaknesses and our corruptions. How do you see yourself? Now ask, how does God see you? Well, that's a different question, right? If you understand the gospel, if you understand enough of the Bible, you know that in Jesus Christ, God looks at us and sees us as forgiven, cleansed, holy, righteous, pure. He sees us as his children whom he loves, whom he has unbroken fellowship with. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. How does God see us? As his beloved. But that doesn't line up with how we think about ourselves. It doesn't line up with how I think of myself. What do I look like? I go immediately to the dark and the corrupt and the weakness. In other words, I so live sometimes in the weariness of this world that all I can see of myself is my own brokenness and not the beauty that is bestowed upon us through Jesus Christ. So here in Revelation 21, what we see is the end, what we will be. But think of it like this. The end is us becoming how God sees us today. <laughs> we will be made perfect, right? How does God see us? Perfect. We will be made holy and pure in every practical sense, but how does God see us in Christ today, holy and pure? So we look, it's, it's the fulfillment of our longing, of our desires to become, to be. So look with me, uh, in the end, you, Christian, will be glorious. Look at verses nine through 11. Then came one of the seven angels, we don't have time to get into all of this, Definitely not. We don't have time to get into all this, but then came one of the seven angels, we know this angel, we've talked about him before, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, who spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, and he carried me away to, in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. That's how we know we're talking about the people of God. This is not a city that we will be inhabiting. We are the city. This is us. So he shows us the bride, the new Jerusalem. Verse 11, having the glory of God. Coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like the most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. We will be actualized in holiness and in beauty. We will have glory, but it's not a glory that comes from within. It's not a glory that, that emanates from who we are and what we've done. It comes from God and we share in his glory. In the end, you will be glorious. You will, be, you will also be secure. You will be protected. Look at verses 12 and 14. 
It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. And on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So we've got this beautiful city, which is us, and it's surrounded by this great wall this great wall, and, and, and the wall and the gates are all marked with the 12 names of, uh, of the apostles. It's uh, from the New Testament. It's, uh, it's the 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament. Again, the walls are for, for the protection and the flourishing of God's people of this city. And how beautiful, how beautiful are we? Look at verses 15 through 21. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, which is like 1,400 miles, if I'm not mistaken. Set a case, look it up. Set a case is a smart guy, he'll he'll know. So it's like 1,400 miles. And, And this city that is being measured is measured out as a cube. It's a perfect square, much like the Holy of Holies in the temple. It was a perfectly cubed room where God dwelt. Now here we have the new Jerusalem, a perfect cube, the city, the people of God, where God dwells with us. 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement, We're not getting into that. We don't got time for that. You looked that up on your own. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth, and I always have to take a minute to breathe, chrysoprase, yeah, I'm not sure, the eleventh jacinth and the twelfth amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. This is something hard to conceive. In fact, the way that John is describing it doesn't even make sense. Well, the streets are like gold, but you can see through them. So they're not gold. They're not made of gold. Are they made of gold or are they not? Can you see through them or not? He's trying to describe what he is seeing, what he's taken in. It's this beautiful picture of a city that meets the same dimensions, right, of the Holy of Holies. It's this cube. And there's this gold street that runs through the middle and there's beautiful stones everywhere. And we're told that this beautiful city where God dwells is the people of God, the church. And there, what we need more than anything is God's presence right you see verse 22 I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb so no temple see in the Old Testament where was God in the tabernacle in the temple in the Holy of Holies but where is he now he is in the people of God and here we see it in full measure see Life is hard and this world is wearying because we don't always recognize the presence of God. We don't always feel it. You ever ask yourself, where is God? What's God doing? 
Why did he leave me alone? Why did he abandon me? Why is he not answering my prayers? Why is he not helping me overcome this problem? Why isn't he providing for me? We all ask the question just like the psalmists do. Where is God? We will never ask that question in the new heaven and the new earth because it is definitively answered and constantly experienced. God is with us. He permeates every part of the kingdom and we feel it. He is with us. We are his and he is ours. He fills the entire space and we are never outside of his presence, nor do we ever think we are outside of his presence. You see, it's the fullness of what we experience in part now. We experience it in part when our faith is working, when it's healthy, right? When we're thinking right, I know God is with me. But then there are times when I'm confused or discouraged and I think like, ah, I know God is with me, but I don't feel like God is with me and I'm kind of mad about it. Like when my wife has a dream that I did something bad and she wakes up and then she's mad at me for what I did in the dream, but I didn't do the thing. We do that thing. I know God is with me, but I don't feel like he's with me, so I'm mad. It's a part of our struggle in a broken world. But here's God's presence, right? There, and his presence is what allows him to be the very light of the whole city. Look at verses 23 and 27. And the city had no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there's no sun, no moon, right? But there's no night. There's no sun, there's no moon, but there's, there's no night because God gives light which means there is always peace. This does not mean that in the new creation there's not going to be a sun. It doesn't mean that there won't be morning and evening. This is a dramatic vision. It's a picture that's helping us to see what it's like for God's people to be in perfection and to live in, in perfect unity with God. He is so present. The light always shines so the city never has to close its gates because there's no darkness, which means there's no opportunity for evil. We don't need the drawbridge to be raised. We, we, don't, we don't need the gates closed. There's not even an opportunity for evil. Besides, our enemies have all been vanquished anyways. And then we get a taste, a taste of this concept of a garden, right? A garden, like from Genesis, right? One, two, and three. This garden, it sort of comes back into play when you look at chapter 22, verses one through five. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night, night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign 
forever and ever. Like a garden thing, right? So you got the picture of a city. There's this golden street that runs through the middle, like Main Street, right? But it's a huge, huge golden street because in the middle of that street is a river that flows from the very throne of God, a river that provides life, unending life for all who drink of it, everyone whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. But then we read about this tree, right? Now, there were two trees in the Garden of Eden, right? There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil gets all the attention, right? Because we know what God said about it. Tells Adam and Eve, he says, listen, the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will, yeah, dead. You're going to die. You will surely die. That is the warning. And they do eat of that. And they do bring death and destruction and chaos into the world. The world becomes now a tiresome and wearying place. But there's another tree that we read about in, the, in Genesis 2.9 it's mentioned right that God puts this tree of life in the garden and then in chapter 3.24 after Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden they're expelled they're like out and then God puts an angel at the entrance to the garden so they can't come back in and then he gives the angel a flaming sword which I think is overkill because I just feel like if I just saw an angel standing there I'd be out. I'd be like, that's good. I'm not, uh, I'm not dumb enough to try that. I will leave the angel alone. But no, he's got a flaming sword. Why? Why the angel at the entrance to the Garden of Eden after they've been expelled? I mean, death has already come upon creation. The curse is already here, so why? We're told, lest they eat of the tree of life and live forever. The tree of life is the gift given to, to those people who will dwell for eternity. In paradise, they're not suitable for it now. The world isn't ready for that now. So they are banished. And what we see here in verse three, that there's no more curse here, right? The tree, there's the tree of life. We get to eat of the tree of life. 12 months out of the year, we get to eat of the tree of life. No more curse. We're going to see God. We will be face to face. This is our future hope. This is our eschatology. This is what we're looking forward to. And I know, I know a lot of Christians, we think about heaven and we don't say it out loud, but a lot of us think like, well, heaven is an inconsequential doctrine or belief. You know, it's nice. It's something that we talk about when somebody dies, but it bears no real impact on my life today because I got real problems I got to deal with and what's going to happen in the future doesn't help me now. We don't say it, but a lot of us believe that. Our future hope is not supposed to be something that we wait for. It's supposed to be something that we prepare for. Because our future is the fulfillment of the promises that we have now. It is the perfection of the graces that we have now. And so what should we be doing in this present life, in this weary world, what should we be doing now in light of that present, uh, that, that future hope? I'm gonna give you three things. I'm gonna make these quick. Number one, in light of our future hope, right? The new heavens, the new earth that awaits us. We should be, number one, inviting people into our future hope. We should be inviting people out of their weariness, out of the curse. It's not too late for anybody. I know there are people that we think it's too late for them. It's not too late for anybody. We should be zealous, Jesus-freaky kind of people. We should be willing to be labeled overly enthusiastic 
in our sharing of the gospel. We should be willing to risk embarrassment because what we're talking about is people escaping not just weariness from the world, but redemption from the world, redemption from sin, and the fulfillment of all of God's promises in the future. So number one, invite people out of their curse and into our future. Number two, uh, in light of this new heavens and earth that we are longing for and preparing for, we should live for God's glory now. Believing and overcoming. I mean, look, I, I know it's tempting to just feel like, hey, you know what? Uh, the world is busted. Jesus is going to come back, make it all new. He's going to do away with the old. So I just need to be patient and wait it out. That's not how it works. You see, in the future, what you will be doing is perfectly glorifying God. You will be brought to that place. But what you can do now is relatively glorify God, meaning you can truly bring glory to God not in perfect obedience, but it doesn't mean that you bringing glory to God is, it is any less real. God is glorified when we believe his truths, when we preach his gospel, when we obey his commands. God is glorified when we are faithful in our faith. We can do that now, and that is how we prepare for... Listen, if, if you're uncomfortable doing what God says now, why do you think you're going to enjoy it then? I know you will, right? Because God overcomes our weaknesses. But really, it really seems disingenuous, if not outright just being a phony. Oh, I can't wait to glorify God then, but I don't want to really do it right now. Live for God's glory now. And number three, the, the new heavens, the new earth, our future hope should give us a growing sense of present joy and confidence. You see, part of what makes the world so wearying is that what we have in the world can be stripped away, can be taken away, can evaporate. We want to do good and be good or do something and accomplish something and we fail. People let us down, the world breaks and falls apart, people get sick and die, it's not fair. It's, you can lose it, but, but what we have in, in Christ that we experience now in part and have the promise of fulfillment in the future, that can't be taken away. The joy of salvation and the confidence that we have that the good work that God has prepared, that has begun in us, he will carry it through to completion. So I have this, we should be able to face the weary world with our heads up, not heads down, shoulders back, walking forward. We should be able to say, God has put me in this weary world with a wonderful, life-changing message and he has given me life-changing grace so that I'm experiencing this now longing for its fulfillment. Yeah, it's hard, it's hard to persevere through uh, a weary world. I get it. I get discouraged. But if we're going to persevere through this world, we have to prepare for the new world. And that is only done as we look to Jesus, as we look to his promises that will be realized. And as we do this together, in Christ, we are forgiven, reconciled to God, promised a future, and commissioned to invite others to come with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the chance to look at your word, to pray, and to sing, and we ask that you would continue to teach us, that you would unite us, and use us for your glory. And Lord, in this weary world, we 
We trust that you will give us growing hope and joy and confidence. In Jesus' name, amen.